welcome to Forcing Function Hour, a conversation series exploring the boundaries of peak performance. Join me, Chris Sparks, as I interview elite performers to reveal principles, systems, and strategies for achieving a competitive edge in business. If you are an executive or investor ready to take yourself to the next level, download my workbook at experimentwithoutlimits.com. For all episodes and show notes, go to forcingfunctionhour.com. Today, I'm joined by Dominic Zelstra. Dominic is the founder of Traverse, an app that has helped over 10,000 professionals learn languages and technical skills faster. Dominic is a polyglot and a super learner. He dove deep into the science of learning to develop learning methods that actually work. Our topic for today is accelerated learning. In this conversation, we prove techniques to boost your information retention, accelerate the acquisition of new skills, and become the person necessary to achieve your ambitious goals. Dominic, so excited to have you here today. Let's learn how to learn. Yeah, it's great to be here, Chris. And thanks for that wonderful introduction. So I'd love to start by learning a little bit more about your background, how you got here. How did you become interested in learning? Yeah, so I always had like kind of a learning drive. Even when I was a little kid, like I would uh, get books from the library and yeah, just start reading them and start exploring all, all kinds of topics. And part of that is like, I'm from a small country, Holland. So languages was always like a big thing for me. Like my grandparents actually lived abroad. They lived in Germany. So we'd often go there and I would pick up German as we went there. So that was that was one thing that really yeah, stirred my, my curiosity. And then when I actually finished high school, I actually went abroad as well. I went to Germany too. I studied physics at university. And again, I kind of kept this sense of exploration and always learning. So even when I was in Germany, I, I then did like my, my master's in, in Brazil, for example. So I actually dove into engineering there. So always looking for, for new topics and then also like picking up languages as I went to those countries. So like I became fluent in German and then in Brazil became pretty much fluent in Portuguese as well. So I always had this learning drive. And actually, it was like five years ago when I met my current wife, who's Chinese. And then I hit kind of a roadblock because I was trying to connect with her parents, my parents-in-law. They didn't speak any, any English. So I, I wanted to learn Chinese. I thought because I'd learned all this other stuff before, like, well, I'm pretty good at learning, right? I, I can handle this. But then it turned out like Chinese was just too hard. And that's when I really dove into like the science and the methods behind learning. That's when I, I realized I have to step back. Like, like I can't just do this in the same way that I, that I always did. And that, that was kind of the point when I yeah, started exploring all of these meta-learning principles, which eventually led to me also building an app that enables other people to do the same. So let's start by just kind of getting on the same page with definitions. What does learning mean to you? Yeah, so... To me, learning is like like a very human thing. I think humans are one of the most curiosity-driven animals. And that means we always explore and want to find out new things, discover how things work. And it's kind of rewarding in itself to do that. But for me, when learning becomes really powerful is when you have a goal in mind as well that brings you further in life. So maybe in your personal relations or in your business, like I'm currently growing a business, when you can kind of combine those two things like this natural curiosity with having a actual goal in mind that you want to achieve 
that is for me like the most rewarding thing of learning. And that is that is kind of what, what learning means for me. And when learning becomes like almost a goal in itself. So it does seem that it's really important to start with this end in mind to direct your curiosity. What advice do you have around selecting a learning goal? Maybe let's start with when you were learning Chinese. It seemed like your learning goal was being able to communicate with your in-laws. How did you work backwards from that? Sometimes it's, it's tricky to have a learning goal. So early on, I was often exploring like all kinds of things without really having a goal in mind. So that led to me like knowing like a little bit of everything in, in lots of topics. But then there wasn't really any topic that I knew deeply. So once I hit this roadblock of learning Chinese, I discovered like actually I have to go way deeper than I used to to be actually able to learn Chinese. And it was this going deep that for me like yeah became the most most rewarding thing because in going deep I was able to form so much more new connections than I was able to before by just learning like very, very broadly, as I think a lot of people do. So what, what do you think the advantages are of going deep? I think of particularly today's culture with Twitter, with a lot of things happening in the news, there's this temptation to be able to have something witty to say at a cocktail party about any subject that could come up when it seems that there's a lot of value in going really deep in a couple of important things that you naturally perform well at. What do you say are the rewards of going deep? How do you encourage that that level of depth? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think like by going deep, we kind of get to a level where where things become almost like subconscious, right? So when I, if I go deep into like learning a language, like Chinese at some level, like I, I will start by just memorizing stuff and maybe using memorization tricks to learn those. And it will be like a very conscious and in some, in some ways, very energy consuming and, and painful process. But once it gets to this level where it's unconscious, it's kind of like, yeah, you call it fluency, obviously. And that, that's what we mean by things becoming subconscious. And that's when we can make deep connections to completely other areas as well. So it was Chinese learning that led me to come up with this this system of learning. But then, for example, a few months ago, I talked with like medical students, and they said like, "Oh, what you've built is like what what I've been imagining for for like years." So, the exact same principles to deeply learn Chinese apply to like deeply learning medicine, for example. And I think those deep connections cannot be uncovered if you if you don't go deeper than like the yeah, cocktail Twitter level of knowledge that's, yeah, that a lot of people are are stuck at, I think. I'm really interested in this principle transference. You mentioned that there are principles that seem to be commonality across everything that you're learning. What, what principles come to mind? Yeah, so there's a couple of, of steps that I found like recur for any kind of skill that I want to learn. So the first one is I always try to zoom out first and try to find out an approach that, that works for that subject. And I call this like, like drawing a map almost. So once you set a learning goal, you draw a map of who are the people in this space that I, that I want to learn from. And those will usually be like people just a few steps ahead. Like if I want to learn marketing, I'm not going to start by, I don't know, following Seth Godin or something because he's just way too far ahead. So I'll, I'll map it out, find the right people, find the recurring themes. And then once I have that, I, I try to, make it my own. And I do that by writing. So I just take like the main pieces of advice that I get from those people. I rewrite them in a way that that makes, makes sense to me. 
And then if it's like a heavily like memory intensive skill, like language learning, I will also set up like a like spaced repetition practice or practice by, by flashcards, for example. But for a lot of skills like like marketing or like copywriting, that's you can kind of skip that step and then I go to like the deliberate practice step. So I will I will just set up a, a practice that I can do. And ideally that practice is already related to the learning goal that I set in, in the beginning, right? So for example, if I want to get better at copywriting, I might set a practice of sending out an email to my audience every week and using the techniques I learned to write better headlines. And then I can actually track the open rates and see if I got better or not. So that that creates kind of this, this feedback loop that make, it makes it possible for me to actually improve. But often you have to go smaller because you cannot directly jump to the actual goal that you're learning for. So for copywriting framework, what I did in the beginning is I was just take like a whole bunch of headlines that I that I liked and I would just rewrite them like with pen and paper, sit down, rewrite them. And that process helped me discover a lot of the principles of why those those headlines work. Because like rewriting is such a slow process. I would have to think about every word. Why did they put in that word? Why did why did that get my attention? Why did I click that link? And that that caused me to think back. So these kind of deliberate practices really help help us uncover the deeper principles. And then, yeah, I like to do those practices, like setting up a, a schedule to do those practices. So maybe I, I practice like copywriting once a week and then that, that kind of repetition, yeah, makes me a little bit better every time. So those, those are usually the steps I go through for any learning. So, and I, I used a lot of examples here in, in copywriting, some in language learning, and obviously those steps might differ a lot for, yeah, depending on, on the nature of the skill you want to learn. That's so great. And I think it's worth going deeper into those because essentially, I think you could apply these to anything that you wanted to learn. So starting with drawing a map, having these examples that you're following, what is good in this skill? I think it's useful to have a yardstick to measure against. And so that's usually people, like you said, who are a few steps ahead of you, something that you could reasonably reach and you can compare and see, hey, am I making progress towards this North Star, as well as what are the, it allows you to work backwards from what are the steps necessary to get to this point, kind of start to create a, a plan of here are the, the sub-skills, I think is something that you pointed at, of maybe you can't take on a whole field at once, but you can start to deconstruct it into its component parts and then train those separately. I think the rewriting the advice, you talked about taking headlines and trying to recreate them. There's a lot of power in that because while we can just copy what someone else is doing, we won't actually understand or internalize what is the thought process behind it. And thus we won't be able to replicate those results. We'll just know that something is good without understanding why it works. So let's talk about this in improving writing or copywriting in this case is can you take the principle and recreate the result by working backwards? So start from here. I know this works. Let's figure out some of the reasons why it works. Why does this headline get clicks? And for example, and finally, this turning it into a practice. I think this is something that you talk about, which I think is very wise is we tend to approach learning like we might have back in school. Uh, we have a test coming up and we need to cram for it, but that this is a ongoing practice that we continue to iterate on. And just like anything in our lives, we need to schedule it. 
talk to me a little bit about how when you learn, some of the learning is taking place outside of the learning period. I know you're really big on this concept of spaced repetition. Why is it important that we're coming back to something at regular intervals? Yeah, so like in my experience, a lot of the learning happens not when I actually sit down and focus, but rather where you kind of maybe chill out or even have have like sleep on it and your subconscious keeps processing it. And then the next day you wake up and you have some some new insights or it actually seems much simpler than it than it seemed like at a time when you're actually trying to do it. And I think that's what you're actually giving time for when you when you do like this space repetition, for example. So by spacing it out over time, you've given your brain much more time to like subconsciously process it and form those new connections. And then the good thing is when you then actually consciously repeat that again, you formalize those connections and you, I don't know, you maybe write it, you write it down and that allows you to build on top of them, right? Because even if I, if I didn't do, do those, those repetitions, like my unconscious might still process that, but I wouldn't be able to, I might actually lose those results because I don't reflect on them and like my subconscious does the work, but I, I cannot build on that because I never, never actually use it. And I, I've already jumped and moved on to the next thing, right? Whereas by periodically reflecting on that, I can build on, on what I've done in the meantime. How do you manage to stick to a learning schedule? It seems like learning anything is the classic important, but certainly not urgent and something that it's very easy to punt on to when it's most convenient. I know when it comes to learning something like Spanish, I don't touch it until the week before I'm about to go to a Spanish speaking country and just you know hope and pray that I can remember all the things that I haven't thought about in a couple of years. How do you stay consistent with something that might not have a near-term deadline? There's two ways I do that. So first for, for like memory intensive things like learning language vocab, I use space repetition software like like my app, which I which I created, and it just schedules like what I should review at any day, right? So every day I might have like 50 flashcards to review, and I just review those, and it will be scheduled out at the actual optimal time for me to to review that. So that that's easy, and it takes me like maybe 10 minutes a day, which I can I can basically do any day, right? And if I can't, then the next day I do 20 minutes. I don't know. So that kind of does the work for me. But then there's obviously skills like yeah, writing, copywriting that's that are not primarily reliant on memory. So for those, like my process is a bit more manual. I actually have like to-do lists where I well, I use Notion. So you kind of have uh, have your to-dos, but they are at the same time they are like notes where you can where I write down what like my progress and what I did. So I have a due date. For every note, so it's not like a due date, but it's like a due date, the date that dated you to actually do it. So at that that date, I will do something. So I have a due date, for example, for writing headlines. So I will write some headlines. I will reflect on them, and then once I've done that, I will move that due date to like whatever period I want to. I want to do that periodically, right? So for example, I move it like one week ahead, so that it's it's in my in my to do list for that day exactly one week from now. So it's just like one of the items on my to-do list and it is there, it's it's visible, so I have to do it. I like to talk about each of these. So let's start with spaced repetition. What is it? Why does it work so well? Yeah, so spaced repetition, it's based on the forgetting curve, which was discovered, I think, over 100 years ago by a German 
scientist called Ebenhauser or Ebbinghaus, I think. And he basically discovered that when we try to remember something, basically our recall decays exponentially, right? So maybe after one day you will have a 90% chance of, or let's say that after one day you have like a 50% chance of remembering it. After two days, you have like a 25% chance of remembering it. After three days, like a 12.5% chance of remembering it. So it decays exponentially. But if you reinforce your memory by repeating that information, maybe on the on the second day, you actually, you reset the forgetting curve. So you reset it to like from 50% recall to 100% recall, but you also decrease the decay factor. So rather than losing half of the information the next day, at that point, maybe maybe you just lose 33%. So after that, after that first repetition, and then the day after that, you have a 66% chance of, st- of still remembering that. So then it follows from that, if you do the math, then it follows from that that the best reviewing intervals to remember any piece of information is like increasing intervals over time. So say I, I learn a new piece, like a new, new like Spanish vocab word on, on day one, then I repeat it on day two, but I don't repeat it on day three. Instead, of I increase that interval and maybe I repeat it on day four. And like the next interval will be even further ahead. So maybe I repeat it again on day 10, then on day 25, and then on day like 60 or something. And, and if you do the math, it's, it's really interesting. If you do seven repetitions and you remember it at every repetition, then that's basically enough to remember it for life. At that point, the interval will be so large that it's actually, it's like your lifetime. So if you do it well, like seven repetitions are enough to remember it for life. And that's, that's like really the powerful thing about space repetition. Yeah, I think that applies to a lot of things in life and that it's very iterative and that it becomes dialed in every time that you return to something. Now, the second one, I love this concept of a do list, like DO list. This reminds me a little bit of the concept of active recall, where you're regularly testing yourself to see how far that you've come. Maybe talk to me a little bit about this concept and how you apply it. Yeah, yeah. So I I usually combine spaced repetition and active recall. So rather than just repeating a piece of information, I will actually formulate a question or a practice that prompts me to retrieve that information. So in the case of language learning, it's, it's very easy, right? Rather than having a word pair to talk, hablar, I will just put like hablar and then I prompt my brain to come up with, oh, the, the correct translation is to talk. So that, that's kind of how active recall works for memory intensive tasks like language learning. And then obviously for for something like copywriting, it won't be a simple simple memorization, but I will have a deliberate practice item, for example, like look back at your browser history and look for 10 headlines that caught your attention, for example, and I will, I will write those down. And that, that will be kind of the prompt to do that action item. One common piece of advice that I know we share is, you know, I think Feynman originally talked about this, where you don't realize what you know until you need to explain it to someone else. And so this testing yourself is very important to iteratively converge on success in a skill or in a learning outcome. So I talked often to clients who are giving a really important presentation and encourage them to schedule a demo presentation to peers maybe a week ahead of time 
where they try to give the presentation and by doing so reveal what are the weak points in the presentation? Where are the points they need to flesh out more? Obviously, they can get some feedback in terms of this resonated a lot. I didn't understand what you were saying here, that the final product becomes even better, even more dialed in the more times that someone returns to it. So creating opportunities to see here's where I stand based on my performance in a realistic training environment. And based off of that, I can focus my learning much more closely because I realize the things that I already have competency in. And here are the areas where I need to specialize. A concept that's really near and dear to us at Forcing Function is feedback loops. So thinking systematically, I like to say that the speed of improvement in anything is proportional to the tightness of our feedback loops, where we receive feedback on how we're doing and we make an adjustment to our approach based off that feedback. What recommendations do you have for someone to create sources of feedback, ways to see how they're performing and be able to adjust their approach? Yeah, yeah. So I think I think that's very interesting. You mentioned especially like Feynman technique and, and feedback loops, because yeah, they're very, very deeply connected. And basically the Feynman technique, it's it's kind of like a trick to create a tighter feedback loop. Because obviously there are things where where we have tight feedback loops. For example, if I if I write those email headlines, I can one or two days later I can see what was the open rate, right? And I have that feedback. For a lot of things, like the feedback loop is much more fuzzy and, and longer. So for example, I, I create a new marketing campaign or, or I send out emails for a few months and I don't know, like people at some point they they respond, but I don't know which touch point was actually prompting them to respond. So I get much more fuzzy feedback. And that's where the Feynman technique can be incredibly helpful because it's basically learning by teaching. So I can basically share my understanding of a certain subject with other people and get feedback on it. And then they will identify, oh, well, that that doesn't really make sense or like I didn't didn't quite get that. And that that kind of allows me to identify knowledge gaps. And I think one thing that builds on top of this is on Twitter, you have this trend of building in public. And it basically it's basically when you're building your your business or your course or whatever, you share things, you do decisions you make, etc. on the way. And yeah, the great thing about that is that you get this feedback from other people who are in the same area and who are facing the same problems and they might be just ahead of you and they might already know what comes next. So you don't have to wait for that feedback loop, but you get that feedback immediately. So so Feynman technique, I think it's a great way to kind of tighten those those feedback loops that would otherwise be very fuzzy and long. So you come from a very technical background. You studied physics, you learn math, you learn data science. How do you think this background influences the way that you approach learning? Yeah, I think I think like this background was probably one of the reasons I I started building an app in the first place because I like to systemize things. And obviously, once I had figured out this process that really worked for me to learn Chinese, initially I was like living in a in a spreadsheet and I was I was keeping track of things in my calendar, and it was very messy. So I thought, well, there must be something out there that can allow me to do this better, but there wasn't really anything. Like there were apps like like Anki, but it only did like like one part of the equation. And there were no taking apps, but yeah, they only did like another part of the equation. So I kind of thought like I have to build a system that can do all of it. So definitely coming from this this background of, of physics and math led me to think deeper about systems and how we can 
even if you have, have conflicting information. So we have all these different techniques, right? And some of them are even like well, one technique might advise something and another thing might advise something that seems to be almost contrasting with it and kind of blending those together and making sense of them in a way that's, yeah, that, that can actually be systemized. I think that that's, yeah, that was heavily influenced by my background in like math and, and physics. So in our corner of the internet, knowledge management, note-taking apps are blowing up. There's a lot of excitement around creating an external source of all the things that we know, where we can have this repository documentation of all the things that we found that are interesting, all of our learning. But where, where do you find that note-taking these apps fall short? So like the trap a lot of people fall into, it's like they have this note-taking app and they just put everything they come across into it, right? Almost without filter, it will be of the links or to just copy and paste stuff. And it fills up to the point where, yeah, it, does, it doesn't really make sense anymore, right? Like you cannot find anything or when you find anything, it's like it's like almost like Google, like you have a hundred results and you don't know which one to pick. So a lot of people use it as almost like, I don't know, just a storage of information. But I think where they, where they fall short is what we actually want is we want these things that actually matter to us that actually help us further to live in our actual brain and not just in a, in a note-taking app. And the process of actually getting the information from the app into your head, in the case of most note-taking apps, it's just, it just doesn't exist, right? So yeah, you have this, this collection of ideas, but you cannot act on it because to act on it, it needs to be in your head and it needs to be almost to the point where you can make it like instinctive. And that just doesn't happen just by writing more things. What we can do, even with, with existing note-taking apps, is if you just focus on a couple of things and heavily filter what you actually put in there and come back to the same and same things again, rewrite them, that can actually help you learn much deeper. Because writing is an incredibly useful process, so let's be clear about that. So that's the good thing about note-taking apps. like They make writing easier, and yeah, we can rewrite and form new, new connections as, as we think. So that's that's incredibly good. It's just that the way people are using them is by making highlights, which is like useless useless techniques, or by copying links or, or like verbatim quotes, and that just doesn't bring us any further if there's no process to actually transfer that back into into our first. I'm saying our first brain, but into like our actual our actual brain. <laughs> so something that you you pointed out there, I think, is really interesting, especially from someone who spends a lot of time on computer, on devices, is the power of physical feedback from our senses. Talking about making your map earlier using pen and paper, even when you're creating a note, the active experience of typing something rather than a little bit more passive experience of highlighting something or copy and pasting. But what role do you think that this active motor movement plays in recall? Mm. That's a very, very interesting question. So, I mean, I don't know about the actual like neuroscience behind it, but I do know like, yeah, like passive techniques like highlighting or copy and pasting text just won't work. Because it's, it's like too easy. It's almost like you want this desirable difficulty, right? So if it's too easy, like your brain doesn't, doesn't learn anything because it's almost like automatic. So you have to make it a bit harder. So instead of just 
copying and pasting text or just highlighting it. Like I actually have to give it some thought myself and process it a bit and write it in my own words, even if it's terrible, because just that that little bit of effort will probably activate something in again in my, in my subconscious, which then allows me to come back to it at some later time, and then I can probably write much better than what I what I wrote initially. So, so it it starts off something that does work in the background, which wouldn't happen if I if I just copy or paste it or if I if I highlighted it. So I think that's like the important difference between like passive and active learning. This brings to mind deliberate practice. I think this is one of those teacher's answers that we're really good at saying where someone asks, hey, how do you learn this skill? But we don't actually know how to do it. So how does deliberate practice work in practice? It feels like it's this balance of playful, but also very active. Do you maybe have a recent example of how you've applied it? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great question. So it's always best if you can practice the whole skill. So for example, recently I've been trying to to build a, a community around some of the, the medical students who are using the app. And I don't know much about community building. So obviously I was going to all to this process of, of mapping that out and kind of finding people in that space. And then I kind of struggled to find find a deliberate practice because I'm not at a stage where I can say, like, well, every week I'm going to spend one hour of building community because I just, I just <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't know what to do, <laughs> right? So the way I broke that particular thing down is like, yeah, using some of the, some of the sources I, I discovered along the way is by finding existing communities that are related and kind of start mapping those out first. So what I, what I will do as a deliberate practice is I will spend like half an hour in like Discord or Slack community that is relevant and well, first, just identify the people who are like leaders of that community, what they are saying, what gets a lot of response, what gets a lot of likes, and kind of creating a map of those communities. So that's just an example of how even if deliberate practice for a particular skill seems very vague, we can probably still find ways of breaking it down into very concrete actions that we can actually actually take periodically. And I, th- I think that's that's often a challenging thing in itself. But once that's done, it's it's very powerful because then we have like actual actions that we can take. And it's not it's called practice, but it's not just practice, right? Because by actually doing this, I learn a lot about building those communities. And because I apply it to the communities that are already relevant, I get to know the people that I actually want to reach out to at some later point. And by that point, I have already learned a lot about them. So I will be much more effective. Yeah. Speaking of effectiveness, it's something that I have seen that is unique to us as humans, as we're really good at justifying our behavior. And thus, if we aren't careful about being specific around what counts as practice, there's a lot of things that we can justify later as practicing. So you talk about doing something like building a community. There's lots of different actions that you could have taken to say, hey, I'm learning how to build a community, but being really specific in how you were using your learning time and that you thought the most effective way to acquire that skill and find things you could directly apply to building your own community. And obviously being able to circle back on a regular basis and saying, hey, is this time being 
well spent. Another example that comes to mind a few years ago, I wanted to learn stand-up comedy. So there's lots of things that I could have justified as learning stand-up comedy. Hey, maybe I'm going to watch every single season of Seinfeld and really like learn about, okay, how does Seinfeld really funny, but that would have been a very passive experience. And I decided the most active way to deliberately practice this skill is to tell a lot of jokes and to see where people laugh and what are the parts that people laugh at. So I think I think this is something that you you hinted that I think is really worth underlining. And when you're trying to practice something, there's always a most direct path. So being very specific about what actions count as learning and regularly reflecting is are the things that I'm doing leading me towards my goal. Yeah. I love that. So I actually had a stint at learning stand-up comedy, but that was that was in my pre-learning phase. So that was when I still tried to do a lot of things at the same time. So I did like this stand-up comedy course for like a month, but then actually after that, I didn't really pursue it because I had gotten to a level where I was kind of okay with it, but I didn't have any go with it. So then I probably don't remember much from it now. So that, that kind of goes to show that you have to learn it deeply because else it just gets lost. Yeah, it's another common phenomenon is thinking about what is the outcome that you're going for. I think the classic example, this one's very top of mind for me, is I'm running a race on Saturday. So all of a sudden, I'm getting very excited about running technique and increasing my cardio. But the common phenomenon is after the race, there's no reason to run anymore. So the skill falls off and we get out of shape or we forget how to do the thing, right? This is a classic extrinsic reward that when the reward is removed, so goes the motivation. So if we're looking to build something for the long term, in addition to creating a test, something to see, hey, how far we've come, thinking about what is the payoff of continuing to invest in this skill, continuing to make it part of our identity. Otherwise, we run the danger of ramping up and then having to start off near from scratch the next time that we want to discover how to become funny. Yeah, I think there's also a fine balance there because there's people who say like, well, you don't need goals, you just need processes. Uh, when I build the right processes, then I can actually stick to them when we cost, as you said, as I when I achieve the goal after that, I don't know what to do and I, I will just like forget about it again. But I think there's a fine balance there because we cannot just rely on processes without having a goal in mind. We just need to make sure that the goal that we have is long-term enough to keep us motivated for, well, for basically like a lifetime almost, while at the same time having those, those smaller measurables that we can actually measure our progress against. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I like to think about working backwards from a long-term vision and the more concrete that vision, we start to get a picture of who do I need to become in order to accomplish this? What is different about Dominic in the future who has accomplished this goal versus Dominic in the present? And we start to identify the subskills, the things that we need to build in order to become this person. So we both have the long-term, all right, this is something that I need to stick to for a while. So pace myself you know, continue to reflect on it over the long term, but also having these short-term milestones where we can test ourselves and there's a little bit of incentive to perform in the short term rather than the convenient, just continuing to put it off for that final exam. 
Yeah, I, I love that. Like, it's almost like you have this delta between where you want to be and where you are now. And you have to focus on the items that that's narrow that gap as much as possible. I think one thing that helps there as well is rather than, because I often, when I go on Twitter, for example, I see all kinds of people who are, well, they are, they are way ahead. They are more successful, right? So it's kind of, it's inspiring, but at the same time, it's like, like, demotivating right because you know oh, i'm not there yet but if you look backwards like maybe like one or two years ago and look at where you were where you are now and look at that delta and see how much that has how much smaller that has become and then extrapolate that into the future like two or five years ahead i think then it becomes like much more encouraging and, and motivating to stay on track for those long-time goals and visions you have to stay in the game Anything that is worth learning, any skill that's worth building requires long-term dedication. And naturally, there's going to be times where motivation wanes, where something gets put down, but needing a reason to stay in the game. And like you said, I think there's the double-edged sword to the world that we live in where expertise is so accessible, where on the one hand, we are always seeing examples of how we could do better. And that's very inspiring. But at the same time, we're painfully aware of how other people are doing better. And we can fall into this comparison trap where we see the results that someone else is having, but we haven't paid the costs in terms of time and effort to reach that. And we get demotivated because, well, I'm never going to be as, as good at copywriting as this person. Or for me, I'm never going to become you know as good as my favorite drummer. So why even start? And thus coming back to this learning outcome, what is something that is reasonable to be accomplished? And are we committed to putting in the time and effort necessary to get there? I'm curious for you, someone who is a super learner, who makes learning very central in your life. How is your life different with learning at the center point? What changes outside of just learning this particular skill when you're engaged in this process? Right. So yeah, I think by setting those goals and actually working towards them. So like I've achieved a couple of things by by setting those goals. So first, like, well, for example, being like self-employed, right? Like no, no longer being a, a company employee, but actually having achieved financial independence to some degree and being able to to work on that. And that is something which I, quite, which I think comes together with, with entrepreneurship. Like entrepreneurship is like, like a super learning challenge, right? You have to learn like a lot of skills at the same time. And you also have to, to be very careful about like which skills can I actually become good at? And one of what I want to focus on and which ones do I have to just outsource and, and leave to, to someone else to, again, avoid being, being able to do a little bit of everything but not achieving much on the whole. So once you figure it out, it gives much more, it has given me much more focus. And like I know what I have achieved in the past years. And if I extrapolate that, I see there will be more freedom. I will have more freedom to basically dive into the stuff that I'm really interested in, right? Like, like it's not freedom to just do nothing. It's like the freedom to grind away on what you actually, what you actually love to do. And I think that's what learning can give you. Like if, if you learn with the right goals in mind, you will be rewarded for that. Also monetary in to and a degree where you can actually spend more time on the, on the stuff you actually like to learn and go deeper into that and, and continue 
being rewarded and, and recognized for that. So I think that's a very, very tangible like life outcome of being super focused on learning. I like to think of it as I'm calibrating my intuition. In this case, my intuition on what is important. I think a good rule of thumb is to just optimize for interesting where it naturally resonates with you, what do you gravitate towards? What is something that's like your guilty pleasure or the tinkering in your garage? And there's a trust that you know what to do. And the nice thing is that the more things that you learn and the more opportunities that you have to not only put this learning into practice, but to see what learning activities lead you towards your goals, you start to accumulate evidence that, yes, I know what to do, and I'm confident that the way that I'm investing my time and my energy is going to lead me towards my goals. It allows you to stick to a process and generally to move much faster with this sense of trust. So it's a very interesting takeaway that you described that this systematic process that I think people from the outside might feel is restrictive that, hey, I have to stick to this regimen, I have to do these things on a regular basis, that this creates this sense of freedom. Remembering, hey, we have the choice, we can learn anything, so let's learn the things that are going to lead us towards our goals that we naturally are curious about, that we enjoy, and becoming this type of person knowing that, hey, I can do anything, it's just a matter of learning that skill, that gives us a lot of freedom to choose what we want to do. Yeah, 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 I love that. And it's like, yeah, it's like really assuming that like growth mindset of I can learn anything so I can be deliberate about what I want to learn. And I love your idea of optimizing for for interestingness as well because that that kind of assures that you can stay in it for the long game, right? Because I could have built like a marketing business instead. Like if, like if you go on Twitter, you see tons of people who build very successful marketing or... I don't know, like outreach businesses, and it all seems like they achieve monetary success much faster. But if I did that, I'm not like deeply interested in those subjects. So I probably would have given up before I had achieved success in those businesses. So I couldn't have replicated those outcomes, even though they seem simpler to to achieve. So I need to do what I'm really interested in, which is like, yeah, learning how to learn and all the stuff we are talking about now and build a business around that. And that will allow me to stay in it for the long term and yeah, and be rewarded and gain that freedom to keep grinding away on that, which is like the thing I love to do. I think it's an interesting meta point. Past Force and Function Hour episode we had on Sasha Chapin. We're talking about the mental game of writing. And he, I essentially asked him, like, man, writing is so hard for me sometimes. And his point was, if it feels like a ridiculous slog, you're probably doing it wrong. And to go back into, hey, what parts feel hard? Is there a way to work around them or to make them easier or more enjoyable? This is something when I talk about motivation or procrastination, I touch on often is how can you make the thing that you want to do feel easier to do? This kind of downside of mimesis where we see someone else's success and try to replicate that without their natural interests and skills, why it can be so dangerous is some is like, why is this so hard for me? Why am I having the difficulty when all the time, like, what are the things that you're naturally 
leaning in towards, how can you capitalize on that? What if you really double down there? It's something that I think is kind of surprising around productivity is I like to think, hey, what's the thing you're good at? Can you just do more of that? I think it's a really interesting flip versus like, how do I get all these things that I feel inadequate up to this natural level versus like, you're already doing things that you enjoy. You already do some things well. How can you really lean in and double down on that? It kind of brings up an interesting question for me. Like, what do you lean in on? What do you think is your natural gravitation and how how have you capitalized on that? Yeah, I I love that perspective because I think it's like a very delicate balance because yeah, you definitely have like this 80-20 principle of like focus on what you're good at and make that go from good to like super good and capitalize on that versus like being an entrepreneur and doing everything yourself and learning all those skills, maybe moving much, much slower. So there's definitely a balance there. And I've discovered like there's a few things I really like and I discovered one of them is like writing and breaking things down in ways that they make sense actually are have become more enjoyable for me now than doing a technical activity like programming, for example. So I try to outsource programming as much as I can, which I was initially I was doing a lot of programming and much less writing. So I think it kind of evolves as well what your interests are. But the underlying skill that I need to write well is still the same. It's like being able to to zoom out, to see how things fit together, how I can map them out in a way, in a way that makes sense. So the underlying skills that I have to learn in order to become good at that skill, it's still the same. And that's that's what I have gotten better at over time. And that's why I'm being able to do this transfer learning from being able to, to program well to being able to to maybe explain a concept well in writing. And like writer writing is something that you mentioned as well that, that can be very challenging and struggling with. And there I actually found it helpful to, as you said, break that down into much smaller tasks. And one big thing that helped me to write better is by allowing myself to make the first draft like really, really bad. Just put all the words on there, put a mention stuff that you that you want to say there. It doesn't matter if it if it makes sense or not, if, if the English is is like not good. Just get it out there. And that's actually easy and enjoyable. And then you just need to do a few rounds of editing. And editing is for me less enjoyable, but it's just editing, right? It's just like like polishing stuff that's already there. So it's it's also like a much smaller step for me to do. And I think that yeah, that's kind of I probably applied the same principles to do a big task like creating an app, for example, and breaking that down into small programming tasks, which were actually manageable and doable. And now kind of just transferring those those same principles to yeah, learning something like writing, which is essentially still the same systemization that is probably like just an innately very enjoyable activity for me. It brings to mind something that I believe Ira Glass popularized. Ira Glass is the host of This American Life and talked about the peril in doing anything creative where you're taking something that doesn't exist and putting it out into the world is that particularly in the early going, but really forever, your taste will always surpass your ability. And so the peril, particularly in the beginning, is to judge yourself and to compare what is coming onto the page with the things that you're consuming and to start to fall into this narrative trap of, I'll just never reach the point 
of being good enough. So yeah, trying to find ways to practice a gentle touch with yourself, avoiding this judgment, but instead being curious, what is the, as you said, this delta between where I am and where I'd like to be and the things that I seem to enjoy, the things that resonate with me, that the work that I think is good, let's deconstruct that. What are, what are sub-skills that I can use to start to train, to start to close that gap? And whenever possible to find ways to enjoy that process. I think on this theme of sticking to a learning plan and making learning fun and easier, I think it's important to talk about environment. So a core belief at forcing function is that a lot of our behavior is contextual. So it's really important to create a contextual container that supports progress towards our goals. I'd love to hear about your environment. This could be physical, this could be digital. What things have you done to create an environment that's supportive of your learning? Yeah, I think that's a great point because we are always much more reactive in our actions, like actually responding to our environment than we think. Like like when I was employed, like, like I worked as an aerospace engineer, I worked as a, as a data scientist and I thought I was learning a lot because I was advancing in my in my job at like a, like like a good pace and getting better at it. But if I compare that to the way and to the pace of learning now that I'm like an entrepreneur, it seems like back then I was just like actually like slacking, right? So I think environments is a very important factor and I think we can improve it by being conscious about mainly the people that we that we surround ourselves with. And the great power of Twitter and the internet is that we can actually identify those people and, and talk with them directly, right? So I did, I joined the OnDeck Course Creator Fellowship last year and I met a lot of amazing people there who were like ahead of me. They were like had a big following on the internet. They knew how to write really well, how to make really good content. And by being in that environment, I just, I think a big thing of that was actually having this mindset of, well, a few years ago, they were struggling with the exact same things that I was struggling with now and being able to actually see those people and being able to talk with them and being in that environment just was so encouraging and inspiring that it allowed me to stay on track and basically build what I needed to build, which would have been much harder if if I hadn't had that environment and I might have like given up before, like just before achieving the success, right? So I think the biggest thing you can do about your environment is surrounding yourself by the people who are where you want to be maybe in six months or or one year. How do you identify those people? How do you choose who those examples are? Yeah, so a lot of it's just exploration on Twitter or you can start from Google as well. But even better... If I know somebody in my personal circle, even if they might not be perfect, but if they, they can point me in the right direction, I will I will always prefer that over like a random internet search because it's like like a trusted source, right? It's like if I go on the internet, there will be so much noise and yes, the best people are there, but I might not be able to find them or I might like find somebody else first and then be stuck with them even though they're not exactly the right person. So if I have a trusted source that can point me in the right direction, I would always go to that first to find the people that can help me. And that's, that's another thing that was so great about being in the right environment is that in most of the things that I want to learn, 
I know at least one person personally that I can ask to actually point me to further persons who know more specific things that I want to learn as well, that I can learn from. So once you start building this network and creating that environment of people who are just ahead of you, but on the, on the same track, it becomes much easier to find the right people to, to follow and to interact with, to learn any skill, basically. I think anyone listening to this could share frustration, perhaps, at how our education system has been formulated, the way that we try to impart knowledge to the young. And obviously, this misconception that learning stops as soon as we graduate. If you could change one thing about the way that our education system works or how classes are taught, what's one thing that comes to mind for you? Oof, (laughs) that's a very interesting question. If I could change one thing about the education system. So I think, I think the biggest thing would be a, would be about mindset. And I don't don't know what the exact thing that you would change to change this, but what you often get is like you pass exams and you get bad grades or you get good grades and maybe you get good grades in biology, but I get bad grades in math. So that means I'm good at biology and I'm bad at math, right? And once I have that perception, teachers and, and parents will often reinforce that and kind of create this fixed mindset. Well, I'm bad at math and I will never become become good at it. So maybe not pursue anything that has to do with math, right? So I think the biggest thing would be, yeah, like allowing children and parents to have like a growth mindset instead. And basically, yeah, showing them they can learn anything, uh, like they can learn math if they really want to. And I think there was this one guy, I I forgot his name, but he basically created a like a video game or something where kids could play around with mathematical concepts and kind of learn about geometry and, and shapes like that. And you know, in a way that was very playful, but not not like dumbed down. Like they would actually learn very deep mathematical principles by doing those activities. And even children who perceive themselves as bad at math, they would be able to to do that effortlessly, just as good as like the, the math nerds, right? So I think that kind of things. It was a, a Seymour paper who did this, by the way. So I think those kinds of learning methods are very, very, very empowering. If we could have more of that in a classroom, I think that would that would bring about a huge change in, in education. What do you think made that approach so effective, that it was playful, that it was hands-on? How does it differ from typical approach? So it was very much focused on like actually bringing stuff into practice, right? When you learn math in school, you learn it to pass a test and you learn about, I don't know, Pythagoras equation. and Yeah, just the equation and you have to know like which letter goes where and then you can fill it out and get the outcome, right? But what those children were doing is they were actually learning like, well, if I, if I adjust this parameter, then this universe or playground that I'm building will create like this kind of shape or the ball will roll there instead of there and it won't go into the hole. So was much more focused on having an actual goal that they wanted to achieve and bring that into practice. And they could see like how the principles that they learned actually mattered for what they wanted to achieve, right? After they had learned those principles, they could then achieve something which they couldn't before, which was like, I don't know, create a new universe where, where things worked differently, for example. So I think this focus on having a goal 
and working working towards that rather than just passing a test and uh, be done with it is what made it so successful. So if you were talking to someone younger, someone earlier in their career who wanted to accelerate their pace of learning, become someone who acquired skills more effectively or was able to you know, recall information, put it into practice, what's the most common piece of advice that you would give to this person? Yeah, so I, I would advise to be very clear on their goal first, as we talked about a lot. So starting with the end in mind and yeah, really defining what it is they want to learn and why they want to learn it and how this is going to make their life better so that you can actually actually stick to it in the long term. And then once you set that, I would then yeah advise to start building on what they already know, right? If you just go out and do an internet search, it might soon become overwhelming. But if you Start with what you already know, with the people you already know, explore from there and map out the space, but associate it with, with what you're already familiar with, then it becomes much more tangible. And then obviously we can apply all those other our techniques like drawing out this map, writing, writing a lot, rewrite, rewriting and making, making it your own. I think that's a very, very important tip as well. People tend to be too passive and yeah copy and paste and thinking that it's saved in the app. So it's saved in my, in my brain as well. So create those active practices of writing and then come back to it repeatedly, set up a practice, find some, something that you can practice and set up a schedule so that you can actually practice and, and stick to that. And then also reflect on, on how far you've come and like how far you still need to go to achieve your goals so that you can get this sense of progress and, and stay motivated. So Dominic, let's say that I want to learn a language or build my technical skills. Tell me about what you're building at Traverse and how I can use this app to accelerate my learning by putting these principles into practice. Yeah, so Traverse, it incorporates like some of the techniques we, we talked about. So you have this mind mapping space almost where you can create this initial map of a particular topic. And then within the map, you can zoom into each of those topics and start taking notes. So it is a note-taking app in that sense. But then we've also added flashcards with spaced repetition to it that you can actually like take the most important things from those notes and have them scheduled for them to review them at the optimal time and create those active prompts that prompt you to really think about it and really get better at it rather than just passively rereading it. And then another thing which we've done is to make it really easy to to share with other people so that other people can give you feedback and it's kind of make it easier to apply the Feynman technique in real life because you can you can map something out, you can write it all in your own words and then have somebody else review it and they can say, oh, well, that doesn't really make sense. Maybe you should, you should rewrite that. And that allows you to identify those knowledge gaps. So yeah, it has like the, the concept mapping, the space repetition, active recall, Feynman technique, and then obviously you can schedule those those prompts also to set up a deliberate practice. So that kind of makes it different from a like note-taking app like Notion, which is great for like task management, for example, but it doesn't have those techniques in place to actually transfer what's in the app into your actual brain so that you can you can master what you what you want to learn. And that's why we're here. Thank you so much for coming and sharing these principles and how to put them into action. I think that that's a good place to wrap as far as a takeaway. 
Like you can achieve whatever you want if you become the person capable of that skill or you acquire that knowledge. So this learning how to learn is the skill. It's the meta skill that allows the acquisition of all the others. So, you know, finding opportunities to practice, being very clear on your learning outcome, regularly testing yourself, seeing what you're doing is working. And through this regular iteration, you will converge on the person you need to become to achieve whatever you want to achieve. So Dominic, thank you so much for coming on the show today, for sharing what you do and giving us this sense of what is possible if we adopt this mindset, if we put these principles into practice. Anywhere you'd want to send people who are listening today? I'll actually create a bonus forcing function listeners on traverse.link slash forcing functions. So yeah, you can go there. I will create a nice little bonus for you just with a a four-step process to help you learn quicker and retain more. So I, I will set that up and then you can go there if you want to learn more about Traverse and yeah, you'll get a nice personal introduction from me. Awesome. That's traverse.link slash forcing function. Check it out. Dominic, I believe you're on Twitter as well. I am. Yeah. My handle is at Dominic Zilstra. So first name, last name. So if my name is somewhere in the podcast description, people can probably figure that out as well. (laughs) We will do that for sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dominic. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. Thank you for listening to the Forcing Function Hour. At Forcing Function, we teach performance architecture. We work with a select group of 12 executives and investors to teach them how to multiply their output, perform at their peak, and design a life of freedom and purpose. Make sure to subscribe to Forcing Function Hour for more great episodes, or go to forcingfunctionhour.com to sign up for our newsletter so you can join us live. (laughs) 